Hello and welcome to the Movie Maker Interviews podcast. I'm Caleb Hammond, the managing editor at Movie Maker. We're very excited for this week's guest. He's a screenwriter, a director, and most recently, you can add novelist to that title. We're happy to welcome Charlie Kaufman. We're here to discuss his most recent film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which stars Jesse Plemons, Jesse Buckley, David Thewlis, and Tony Collette, and is an adaptation of the 2016 novel of the same name by Ian Reid. So I'm interested in this movie. I'm interested in starting from the beginning. Do you want to um, take us into kind of how you discovered this novel by Ian Reid and when you first were reading it? Uh, were you just reading it for pleasure or were you reading it specifically with an idea that you might adapt it? I was looking for something to make into a film. Um, and uh, I don't know how I came upon it. it it, it, it's a sort of, um, maybe it was recommended to me um, online based on my purchase history, I don't know. I was looking for something that was in a sort of in a genre and that um, wouldn't cost a lot to make because I, I, I thought I'd have a better chance of getting financing for something that already existed than for, you know, an original piece, so. What's the process for you in adapting a novel versus, you know, writing an original screenplay? How does that uh, sort of working process uh, in your differ? Hmm. Well, I mean, it's something that it's pre-existing. So, you know, I don't, I don't have to conceive of the, <laughs> of the story and, um, you know, and, and I do sort of feel the need for some freedom in adapting. Um, so, I, I, I think um, being tethered too closely to the book or whatever it is I'm adapting, it makes for a, a kind of a dull adaptation. So, um, you know, I want, I want to have that freedom, uh, but also it's, you know, the story exists, which is very different than the story not existing. Specifically with this novel, how did you you know, without spoiling it, because a lot happens in this, uh, you know, movie and in the novel. Um, mm -hmm. How did you sort of navigate those realms of where to sort of take liberties with your adaptation versus like when you want to kind of hew more closely to the, the original story? How did you kind of approach that sort of balancing act? I mean, when you first read something, when I first read something and I'm, I'm just reading it for the sake of reading it, which, you know, I'm doing, even if I'm looking to adapt something, I'm still just reading the book. Um, there's a kind of an, um, it's, it's a little more casual, uh, once I decide that I'm going to take it on and, and make it into something else, I have to kind of look at it, um, and understand what it is that you understand it on, a, um, a deeper level. Um, and I think that once, uh, I do that, or once I try to do that, I, I come upon things that I need to understand that I maybe don't understand. And, um, so if there's something that's not clear to me, um, that I, or I don't feel works for my purposes or, or resonates with me, then I have to kind of make some changes. And, um, so that, that was the case in, in this, as in anything that I would adapt, uh, I have to understand what it is that I'm working with. Um, and it has to become mine. I, I haven't read the whole thing admittedly, but I was reading you know, your new novel, which came out recently as well, Ant Kind. And I can't help but notice that both 
sort of your novel and this movie sort of begin in a car. Um, and in Ant Kind, you know, it's the protagonist sort of driving alone. So the novel sort of starts out in his head, sort of in his inner monologue. And, and I'm thinking of ending things, you know, there are two characters, so they're able to kind of talk together. But it also sort of gets in uh, Jesse Buckley's character, Louisa's sort of inner monologue as well. Uh, yeah, I'm just curious, what is it with you and road trips? And do you have any sort of specific sort of thoughts on, on those or? No, I have no specific thoughts on that. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been writing the book for, you know, since probably 2012. So uh, that it starts in a car, um, you know, uh, predates my reading Ian's book. Um, you, you know, I, I, I like, I like that Ian's book uh, took place mostly in a car because it, it was contained and because it would be, I thought, um, relatively inexpensive to shoot, which is what I figured was going to be, um, was going to allow me the, the opportunity to make it. Uh, I also thought it was an interesting thing to try to kind of, um, you know, contain it and, and try to make it interesting cinematically uh, when it does take place mostly in a car. So, um, so it intrigued me. Um, but I don't have any particular um, interest in car trips or road trips as a thing. Just, it's a coincidence. Yeah, and that actually was a question I had about um, filming scenes in cars, which is, you know, it's a, uh, it could, you know, you, you might be limited to a few different shots. Um, so how did you work with your cinematographer, Lucas, to kind of make sure that the film is visually interesting as, you know, these two characters kind of drive to the farm and then drive away from the farm? Well, I mean, initially we had hoped to sort of have um, more freedom and we hoped to have a car that we could take apart and put back together so we'd have more angles, but we didn't. Um, and we didn't have the money to do any of the things like that that we wanted to do. But we do have more, since the stuff in the car was shot in front of a green screen, we do have a lot more freedom um, than you would if it was, you know, it was trailing a camera car. You know, I think the compelling thing um, and the most compelling thing uh, is the performance, the performances of Jesse and Jesse. And hopefully that's what keeps it interesting. That's what keeps it interesting for me. We try, we try to make it interesting visually and we, you know, do a lot with, um, with the snow and, and with the storm and um, all of that stuff. But ultimately it's in the performances. Yeah, and there, there are a lot of uh, amazing sort of overhead shots that I really love. And I think the first instance of one is when they arrive at the farm um, and he's, I think Jesse Plemons character says something like we're here. And then it's this overhead shot of the car and like, they're just surrounded by snow and it looks like, you know, it's sort of like this funny visual joke of like, we've arrived somewhere, but it looks like even more in the middle of nowhere than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, how did you guys conceive of those shots? Cause they kind of pop up throughout, you know, there, there are a few of them. Well, I mean, that shot is from the mother's point of view. She's looking out the window at them. So that mm -hmm. that's the justification for that shot. Um, and that's something that's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a moment in the book and, and it's a, a moment that I like. So we, we put it in the movie. In terms of other overhead shots, we have the um, shot at the high school parking lot, I guess, mm -hmm. is, is overhead. And that was, you know, to, to, sort of to sort of illustrate that they were in the middle of nothing and nowhere which is, I guess, similar to what you took from the previous shot. I think that those are the only two. Are there others? Yeah, they might be the only two. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that was a crane shot. We, we, um, that was our most expensive <laughs> shot, I guess, probably, because we had to rent that thing. Yeah, and those were cool shots because, you know, I'll, um, sometimes in movies when you see a crane shot, it, your first reaction might be, you know, oh, this movie has money for a crane shot. And that seems to be like the main reason for that crane shot in a specific movie. And obviously I didn't feel that here. It felt like, you know. I hope not. I mean, that was yeah. you know, certainly not. Um, we weren't trying to pretend we had money here. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot about opening shots in movies. And this movie has a really amazing opening shot, which are like, you know, these wonderful kind of fabrics, which could be like wallpaper. And then you see it on a sewing machine. And we had, a, that's actually wallpaper. It's the different wallpaper in the house. We had a lot of, the whole idea of everything we tried to do in terms of, um, in terms of the farmhouse was uh, patterns. We were trying to figure out a visual um, look for the film with, with the production designer and the um, costume designer and, and the, uh, the DP. And um, we were looking at old photographs and old paintings and we liked the idea of having these patterns everywhere and having it sort of like this sort of sense of, of, um, of clashing. And um, we've, it was something that we, we found in these old photographs. So we were, we were emulating that. Those are, those are antique wallpapers. And, you know, we were dealing with, again, budgetary limitations. We had a, a farmhouse that we had to decorate and that was the, um, that was the way we did it. So yeah, she does have a sewing room. Um, but if you, you know, you'll notice later in the film that those are the wallpapers in, in, in various rooms in the house. And we had shot those um, uh, just to have them. Um, and, and we decided in editing to um, make those the, the earliest part of the movie once we decided to have the voiceover at the beginning. And to kind of go back to the screenwriting uh, aspect of the the film, the screenwriting and directing. Uh, take us into your process when you're writing a project that you are sort of going to direct. Like how, in your mind, how do the drafts sort of differ? Like if you're writing something that you're not going to direct versus something that you are going to direct, are there, is it wordier? Is it less wordy? Are you sort of, um, yeah, what do you see that script as sort of once you get on set as well? Is it more of a Bible or is it something since you wrote it that you can kind of uh, work off more instinctually? Um, there there are, are, are a few moments of, of improvisation in the, in the movie. Uh, mostly it's on script. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not averse to, to actors improvising and, um, you know, stuff happens and, and it's great. Uh, we use it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, the process is different. You know, I knew this was gonna be a, a, a you know, a low, lower budget film and I knew we had to be able to make it. And um, so that was in my head. The locations had to be limited. The um, characters had to be limited. Uh, there weren't gonna be any sort of like giant effects in it. Uh, as it turns out, we had more effects than we anticipated because the snow, most of the snow or much of the snow was done in post. And yeah, I mean, we had, we had, we had practical snow on set, but some of it, sometimes it failed and we had such a limited shooting schedule. I mean, we were shoot, we shot the whole thing in 24 days that there was really no time for us to wait for things to work out better. And we just had to sort of, in some cases, just go, we'll deal with this later. Yeah, where did you shoot the film? 
Uh, we shot it in and around Middletown, New York. I think it's Orange County. It's upstate New York about, I don't know, maybe two hours outside of the city. And uh, take me into your, you know, process with actors sort of in development and also in production. Are you someone that wants to spend a lot of time with actors in pre-production kind of rehearsing or doing table reads going over stuff or? Well, I mean, you're always sort of limited by people's availability, you know, and um, that was the case here as well. You know, you have them when you have them. And um, I was able to work a little bit in advance with um, uh, Jesse and Jesse. And that's always helpful um, for me, and I'm, I hope helpful for them as well. Uh, they had a lot of dialogue. Uh, the scenes we shot in the car were were um, shot in single, you know, in single takes. Um, I mean, we didn't we didn't cut it in single takes, but we'd have, you know, we shot like if we have a you know 16 minute scene, we shot 16 minutes of them. So it was pretty much like doing a play, which I think uh, uh, gave them a certain sense of um, continuity dramatically and probably a sense of anxiety, which was helpful. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I like working with actors and I, you know, I had a little bit of an opportunity to work, um, to rehearse with uh, David and Tony um, and Jesse and Jesse when they all were there at the same time. And, and that was also helpful to work out some of the, <clears throat> Uh, some of the tone, but a lot of the blocking, there was a lot of blocking that had to be worked out um, in, in scenes um, with them. We were in a very contained space, um, which was the farmhouse, and we just needed to know how things were going to move and where people were going to move. And, and that, that took some time to figure out. And did you write the script with um, the actors in mind? I know you've worked with David um, on Anonymalisa. No, I don't. I didn't work. I didn't have anybody in mind when I wrote it. Probably had characters in mind in Ian's book when I was writing it. And then, you know, and then when it came to casting, um, um, it was a matter of, I mean, and, and, and certainly in the case of um, Jesse and Jesse, they were people who, uh, I came to um, after approaching other people. Um, I mean, not uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with my choice of Jesse and Jesse, who I'm, I'm enormously grateful I ended up with uh, because I love them. And um, but I, you know, had gone to other people who didn't work out and had to had to um, look for new people, and um, was very fortunate to find them. Yeah, and with their relationship on screen, um, I think it illustrates something I've noticed is a bit of a theme in your work, which is like communication between individuals and this idea of how difficult it is. You know, I often joke with my friends sort of about with, you know, every sort of avenue of miscommunication that exists at sort of every step of anything. It, I'm, I'm sort of amazed that anything ever gets done. Like I, when I see a bridge, I'm like, to me, it's not necessarily an engineering marvel. To me, it's like a marvel that like a group of people like were able to communicate together long enough to like build something this big. Now, I was just going to say I had this experience um, when I first directed, um, when I did Synecdoche, I hired production designer and a DP and costume designer and, and all of the different department heads. And uh, 
it was our first production meeting. It was astounding. I mean, these are all really, really good people and really people I, you know, loved working with. But the, the lesson for me was that everybody had a different idea of what this movie looked like, um, you know, and um, so it was very valuable to have this conversation with, with everybody and for everybody to sort of hopefully, um, you know, end up on the same page, which is, I think, is what happened. Um, and that was a lesson about what your expectations are, um, that you've communicated something <laughs> properly to people um, with your work, with your script. So, um, yeah, but I do think those kind of problems are easier than interpersonal communication, which is uh, always a question of, uh, from, you know, in my mind, people not saying what they mean. Um, and, and that's what's interesting to me about writing dialogue you know, is, is, is trying to sort of like uh, recreate that and, and, and have that experience uh, that I experience in, in actual life um, translated into a piece of fiction. And sometimes it's even, you know, in your work, it's more literal where, you know, being John Malkovich or I think in Anonymous as well, like there's instances of characters just literally not understanding what the other person is saying, you know, it's kind of manifests itself in a more overt Yeah, I like that which... a lot. I and mean, then, yeah, of course. And I, I, in, in Ant Kind, there are very many examples of that happening. So it is something that I gravitate toward, not something I consciously gravitate toward. It's just something I think is funny. Um, so it seems to happen in my work. And then another sort of reoccurring theme, which I think uh, is, probably just as obvious which is like the idea of memory and so I think if you go back to like eternal sunshine and then with your most latest this work um there's sort of this idea of sort of the futility of that exercise of trying to remember stuff um to the point where you know when I was watching this your most recent film I'm thinking of ending things uh for a second time I my mind started to wonder I started to think like is this a film about Alzheimer's and like thinking about like you know trying to connect sort of memories and sort of having them get all jumbled in your mind and sort of this character is actually took place here and you know you know what I mean and mm -hmm. I mean I'm not saying the film is about that but it did like cross my mind as I was watching it um uh, what is your sort of draw to you know memories and having characters sort of very specifically like try to sort of latch on to you know the past in specific ways um I, I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously we live in memory. It's, and it's essential to, to, our, to, our, um, to our sense of self, to our understanding of the world and our understanding of ourselves. And um, it is elusive and it is inaccurate. And our experience of the world is subjective and I'm interested in that. Um, so when I'm dealing with subjective experience, memory comes up as something that is um, an, an enormous part of the experience of being a person. So I, I tend to try to include it, you know? Um, but yeah, there, of course there are, there are even allusions to dementia in the, in the, in the movie. And um, so, I mean, there are, I think there are a lot of things that are going on in terms of memory and, imagination and, and different things that happen in a person's head in this movie. So, uh, you know, it does, it does, it is there. You are correct. I hesitate to even use the phrase where, you know, it rewards repeat viewings because, you know, people tend to say that about 
all kinds of things. But in this instance, I think there is so much going on, especially as you get closer to the climax, which, you know, I won't spoil, but I think, you know, there is a lot sort of happening in a lot of things that where like, once I watched it a second time, I was able to sort of connect more of those. Yeah. I mean, I like that in movies. It's something that attracts me to, to um, different movies. And so I tried to make it part of the experience of, of, of watching a movie that I've, I've, you know, created. And, and so, yeah, there are things that, um, and, and I like it in books and I like it in, in any other kind of experience of, of any, any, any creative work that you can find new things if you go back to it, um, you know, so it's there. I, I you know, I, 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 I like that. There are things that you won't see the first time. I, I like the idea that maybe if you watch something at a different point in your life, you'll connect to it in a different way. Um, you'll see different things and different things will be um, um, important to you. And it, it, it tries, it, it, it's something that I try to put in, into my work. Yeah, and that sort of reminds me of, uh, you know, this idea that I think I take away from your work, which is there is a certain beauty in misremembering something. And I know, uh, I think it was Joe Swanberg a few years ago had this line about um, this idea that like, you know, with us having access to like, you know, any film at any time, it, it might be harmful in the sense that you might have watched a film you know, 10 years ago, and it had a profound impact on you. And then over the years, you know, the your sort of miss sort of remembering of what occurs in that film is actually, you know, more beneficial to you as an artist than it is for you to be able to rewatch the same movie like 10 times, you're kind of taking the mystery out of sort of your, your sort of initial viewing of the film, you know, at that place in your time, like you're or at that place in your life, like you were saying. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it reminds me of a conversation that Spike Jones and I used to have where it was like, you know, we, you know, we talk about something that we saw um, that really excited us before we saw it or, um, or, you know, something we read that really excited us in, in theory and then reading it and being disappointed in the conversation we would have is like, yeah, well, what would you have wanted it to be? What were you excited about um, that you didn't end up seeing? you know, which is fuel for your own work. So I don't see it as a negative. If, you, if you've like misremembered something and you get to watch it again and you realize, oh, I created that, that was in my head, not in the movie or not in the book, then it's it sort of like, that was important to me. Maybe I'll work with those ideas that, um, that it brought to the fore for me. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I, I yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with seeing things again and, and seeing things again and realizing I don't like them anymore is even interesting to me. You know, I mean, you go through different periods in your life and something's important to you and then it's no longer important to you. Um, that's, that's valid. I think that there is a value to not having access to everything all the time, but it isn't that for me. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I think I sort of have the same thought in terms of um, I think about I have very specific memories of film trailers as a kid and this idea as being young and seeing sort of a trailer for like a thriller or something on TV a number of times. And in my mind, I would sort of invent the movie that I thought it was going to be because, you know, it would be yeah. months before I'd be able to see it. 
And so to me, like a movie like Steven Spielberg's Munich, like which I really love, like to me, like the impact or experience of watching that trailer, like when I was pretty young is like just as impactful as when I finally saw the movie. Uh, yeah. So I think the, they kind of like tease your imagination a bit um, in a way. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's sort of like the idea of, um, you know, not showing the horror in a movie, in a horror movie is, is, is of value because you allow the, the viewer to imagine something that you can't create um, or, or, or you, limit, you limit their experience by creating it for them. We'll be right back with more from Charlie Kaufman after a brief break. My name is Dan Delgado, and I'm inviting you to take a different look at the industry you know and love. On my podcast, The Industry, we're focusing on the lesser-known stories, things that went on in the background and under the radar, or maybe just forgotten entirely. Runaway productions, insane decisions, and just overall weirdness is what's going on in this industry. And every once in a while, things do work out. The Industry, a podcast presented by Movie Maker. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you're a filmmaker with a budget of $10,000 or more and want to double that budget, contact Movie Maker Production Services. They can help you complete your film. Email tim at moviemaker.com or on Twitter send a DM to at moviemakermag to see if your project qualifies. I read somewhere in a recent profile that you've been taking a lot of long walks. Is that correct? Is that a part of your writing process sort of? Uh, yeah, I would say it, it always has been. I mean, walking is really um, helpful for me in, in terms of uh, figuring out things. And um, um, it also gets me offline, which is also helpful. Although I, <clears throat> I did, you know, I started doing long walks well before uh, there was a possibility of being online. Um, for me back in the early days of my writing. So, um, but, it, but it is helpful. It does have dual purposes now. Um, I don't have a routine, you know, I try, I, I, um, deadlines were helpful for me, uh, or even not even deadlines, but just the idea that, you know, I've been commissioned for something and I have to turn something in is helpful to me. Uh, because it's not like, you know, I'm not like um, Stephen King or somebody who just gets up at six o'clock in the morning and writes for, you know, until lunchtime every day, yeah. whether I have ideas or not, that doesn't work for me. Um, I wouldn't know how to begin to do that. Uh, so I, you know, I need to be sort of inspired uh, to work. Um, I need to have an idea. And so that's kind of what I wait for as you're walking around and you know, you're writing, I mean, I think most writers sort of talk about this. You're like writing something even when you're not writing it. And so are you like taking notes if some idea pops in your head? Are you remembering it? Or are you like trying to not think about the project and clear your mind when you're sort of doing something outside of the writing? No, when I'm walking and I'm deciding that I'm gonna, it's a writing walk, I'm thinking about the writing and I have a notebook and I write it down if I have thoughts and um, it's the safest thing for me to do. So I don't forget, which I do. Um, and yeah, I mean, I do think that there is stuff percolating when I'm not working even. And I've had that experience again and again that, you know, if I'm blocked, 
um, something happens a month later in my thought process that frees things up. And um, I, I've sort of started to trust that it will uh, rather than panic about it. Um, so, you know, that, that's, I guess, part of the process too. Yeah. And just uh, one more quick follow-up. I mean, I'm, I'm asking these walking questions because I've been like, you know, in the past six months gotten really into walking around my neighborhood and I take a very specific route each day and I have like a shorter one if I have less time and then I have like the longer route, but it's always the same. Uh, are, uh -huh. you, are you taking like different walks or are you, are you, do you stick to like, you know, one or two that are very specific or are you kind of like- I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty conservative in my routes now. I, I, um, I take a very long walk and I, I take the same very long walk uh, because when I started doing this, it was sort of at the height of the pandemic in New York and I was trying to find a, a particular route that was uh, the least populated because I was very anxious um, about, you know, uh, the, the virus. So it's, it's a much more um, populated route now as things have relaxed in New York, but it's still kind of a less um, crowded version of if I were to walk in other directions. So I take the same, I take the same walk every day and I know how long it is. And so I know I'm getting this amount of, of exercise and stuff and I know how long it's going to take. And uh, so all of that just makes it easy for me. Yeah. And then uh, walking in New York is, is easier than walking in California for me because, well, I mean, you know, the heat's bad here, um, but it's not consistently bad the way it is in summer in LA. And um, also it's just more interesting, even if it's the same route, because you do see things as opposed to just being by yourself on the street, which was often my experience in New York, I mean, in LA. Yeah, and making sure cars and crosswalks see you because they're not looking for you. Um, yeah. yeah, I had the fun experience of kind of watching this house sort of go up on the market in the sense that like I watched them because I would walk by the same route every day. I watched them like put a new paving on the driveway and put this new fencing up and like weld yeah. the metal fence. And yeah, like, that's the, that is definitely the thing that's of interest in, in LA. One of, one of my walks in LA um, was past this house and that was just like a disaster and it finally got purchased and then it got sort of start, they started to fix it and then they stopped and I was really disappointed. And I'd come back, um, you know, to that walk weeks later and it looked exactly the same. And I was sort of, it was always sort of just sad for me. Yeah, and I had the, the fun timeline as well of like a neighbor like said hello to me because he must have noticed me walking by the house like almost every single day on the dot. And, and then I realized like, what's the timeline to say hi to somebody that's just a stranger walking by your house every day? And it was about three months. So I was like, I wonder how, how that timeline like checks out uh, otherwise, you know. And you, not just you, like, a, sorry, go ahead. You mean saying hello to somebody on the street in LA? Is that the idea? When, when are you allowed to or what? Uh, no, this was more like he was in his yard and we like kind of paused for like a brief conversation. So it was more than just like a, like a hi as you pass somebody, which I think, you know, Ellie yeah, isn't known I've for, never, but it exists. Yeah. It never happened to me in LA. Um, one time I fell um, while I was running in LA and um, yeah, I hurt myself and uh, I was bleeding and, and this guy said something to me like, I've seen you running for years and years, you know, and I had no idea that this guy's ever seen me before in my life and we'd never talked and I'd never noticed him. Um, so 
it took a fall to have that conversation. And then, and then I was out of commission for a while. And when, when I started to run again, um, I passed by him and he didn't say anything to me anymore. That's pretty funny. <laughs> You're like expecting at least like a recognized. Yeah, yeah, we're friends. You know, we're friends. I mean, he came over to me, you know, to ask if I was okay and to see if I needed help getting up, which I didn't. And, you know, we had that brief exchange and that was, that was the end of it. Yeah, I had a sort of, this is going to be great audio for the podcast. Our readers are going to love us talking about walking and riding bikes. Um, I, I had an experience where I was biking in LA and I was like late for like a trip that I had to meet up for. So I had like the luggage. I didn't have a car at the time. And I'm biking down this hill in Westwood and the luggage swings out. And basically, long story short, I like go flying into the curb and like go like I like go over the handlebars of the bike and like land in this lawn. And this guy walks up by me and he goes like, he goes, are you okay? And I go, yeah, I'm fine. And then I kid you not, he was like, okay. And just kept walking. Like he didn't even like slow <laughs> down. Like he was in his mind. I imagine him being like, please say you're okay. Like, yeah, I have, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I have to ask you, cause I'm right here when you wrecked your bike, but I'm really not in the mood to like help you out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. He was so thrilled. I was just like, yeah, hey, I'm fine. You can go. But, uh, yeah. I, I got, um, I had a, a, a shoulder injury once and um it was persistent and terrible and i um i fell again running and i landed on my shoulder and um the pain upon hitting the ground was so excruciating that i was writhing on the ground and i knew what was wrong with me because i i had the injury and i knew that this is what it felt like if i if i landed on it but i couldn't i couldn't i, I, I couldn't do anything but writhe and, and these, this, um, these few people, one guy stopped his car, came over, a few people were around me asking me if I was okay. And I couldn't, like, I, I wasn't okay, but I was also not in a position to have a conversation with anybody. Um, and, and, and so it was like, you know, I, I just, and also it was like completely humiliating. And I just wanted to be by myself until the pain subsided. Uh, and so I was like, I'm okay, okay, le le please, please leave me alone. Um, and uh, the guy of the car was like really offended. And it was like, you know, man, I was just, I just, I, I just wanted to help you, you know? Like I was not grateful, which I wasn't, and I should have been, but I was not in a position to be grateful at that point. I was like, it, it was excruciating. And I didn't want people what, like staring down at me on the ground while I was rolling there. Um, anyway, that's, that's my story. <laughs> yeah, I, I gotta imagine like, I mean, this is a very movie shot, but I got to imagine like if you pass out or something like that happens, like the idea of waking up and having like that, that, you know, upward shot of like 10 people staring at you in concern, has got to be like one of the worst sort of feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, like, and, what and it was completely, I mean, I hadn't lost consciousness, so I wasn't like waking up to something weird. It was completely understandable and kind that these people stopped. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, I, I mean, in, at the time, it wasn't like I was even mad at them. I just couldn't talk. Yeah. I just had to sort of like deal with this thing. Um, and it wasn't like I need somebody to take me to the hospital. But I didn't also, I just couldn't explain that it was a pre-existing injury that I was sort of like. That you I, fall I needed, while you're running. Sort of like I needed, I needed it to subside, you know, yeah. um, before I could, you know, um, continue. Uh, and, you know, and it just didn't have the wherewithal to explain it. So I feel bad about it, but hopefully they're listening to this and they forgive me. Yeah.
Yeah, that's funny because my friends and I would bring up occasionally, like as adults, it's kind of interesting to know that like, to think about like, when's the last time you've fallen? And like, in a lot of instances, adults will be like, it's been like years since I've fallen down. And, uh, you know, for your answer to that question is like, last week while running or... <laughs> yeah, no, it was... Um... Yeah, it was as I was telling you about the second time I fell, I I, I felt embarrassed, like <laughs> you know, <laughs> like God, what's wrong with me? But um, yeah. I, I think that um, you know, in my defense, I was running um, on uneven ground. I was running on dirt, and there were roots, and you know, and it, it, not much of a defense, but it, it's my defense. No, that's a real thing. Like, what do you like park? places will go through and paint roots you know with that pink that yeah um, yeah yeah and you know they wouldn't do that if you know it wasn't a hazard right and also you know I was avoiding running in the street because somebody had told me that um like like a large percentage of uh, emergency room visitors uh have, are runners who are hit by cars you know and it's like when I heard that I was thinking okay I better not run on the street so stick with walking for now i will at least yeah no I, I walk on the sidewalk although sometimes i don't in new york when i i didn't when i'm trying to avoid people i'll go into the street or at least i used to i do that less now because i'm less worried and creatively like how do you what are your thoughts on like you know staying in new york and like writing in new york it's obviously got to be sort of a different beast i would imagine uh, i mean i don't want to be in New York. I mean, New York doesn't hold much interest for me. It's cer certainly not in, in the state that it's in. Um, there's nothing here, you know, um, mm -hmm. except people, uh, you know, um, and um, it's noisy and I, I'm, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, and I, and I can't afford it. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 I'm, 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 when I can, I'm looking to leave the city. Okay. So this is not like a, Charlie Kaufman moved from LA to New York for good. And you know, it's he, that chapter in his life. I moved, I moved from LA yeah. I think good at this point. Um, but I'm in a sublet in New York and it's a matter of, you know, happenstance that I'm here. <laughs>